I don't know what you think life's toughest questions are. Uh, to some extent, I guess they depend on your age and life circumstances. Uh, as a very young teenager, sort of 12, 13, I thought the toughest question you could ever uh, have an answer was McDonald's or Pizza Hut. Uh, that, that, that was a big question. You know, where do you want to go? And well, I mean, Pizza Hut barely exists today. It's, uh, I mean, MacArthur's hanging on. We've got the last all-you-can-eat Pizza Hut still in the MacArthur in the world. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, but then I grew up, right? And as a young man, I realised that the toughest question in life was Holden or Ford? Uh, <laughs> and I can remember friends putting on pressure to go one way or the other, and we won't be your friend anymore if you take this decision. We won't be your friend if you take that decision. Uh, that was a big issue. And so what did I do? I bought a Toyota Camry instead uh, because I'm just perverse, as you know, from the football. Uh, or sensible because Queensland are amazing and Camrys are reliable. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> As we get older, we start to realise that the questions that we thought were hard, the things that really mattered, were probably not that important after all. That, and that's just part of growing up, isn't it? And becoming mature and wise, realising what's important and what's not important. And there can be great sadness as we look back and we see that the questions uh, we were thinking about that just occupied our minds were actually a waste of time. Uh, and it can be even sadder when we realise that there were questions that we should have asked, that we should have confronted, that we should have answered, but failed to answer. And we kick ourselves for lost opportunities and regrets and things like that. Whatever stage we're at, there's tough questions. I don't know what your tough questions in life are at the moment. Are they about marriage? About, you know, the right person? Or maybe about, should I leave? Uh, are your toughest questions about life and death, about retirement homes, about nursing homes? Are they about finances? Are they about suffering? Are they about whether they get dentures? I mean, I don't, I don't know what your toughest questions are. And they're all important things to deal with and not dealing with them would be immature and irresponsible. But as important as those kind of questions are, today I want to suggest there's a much tougher question uh, than any of those questions we might be asking, a question that Jesus posed to his disciples and that he is still posing to us today. And it's the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you reckon Jesus is? Now, your immediate reaction might be, that's not a tough question at all. That's too easy to answer. Uh, you've made up your mind. You're happy with the conclusions you've come to. And maybe you're thinking, who cares? Uh, it's totally irrelevant. The questions about marriage and life and finances are much more important than that. But I want to convince you today that this is one of the toughest questions you could ever answer. Why do I think it's a tough question? Well, one, because everyone's got a different opinion as to what the answer might be. Okay, and so you, know, you might have had friends who think all kinds of things about Jesus, uh, all kinds of opinions going around. Two, it's tough because no matter what answer you come to, people are going to pigeonhole you one way or another. Right? If you conclude he really is the Son of God who came to save us, people are going to go, oh, one of those born againers, hey? You know, you're a churchy, yeah, right. Uh, or you come to a different conclusion uh, and people will say, yeah, oh, yeah, right, you're an unbeliever, you're a pagan. You, know, you, you will get boxed pigeonholed one way or the other. But really, I want to suggest this is a the tough question 
toughest question uh, for a third reason. That is because it's so important. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then what he says about the world, what he says about life and about death, what he says about what happens afterwards, what he says about life's purpose and meaning, what he says about you are profoundly true. And more than that, how you answer the question will fundamentally change who you are. It will shape your life, perhaps radically, and it will certainly change how you think about all those other questions that we might be trying to answer about life and death and marriage and finances and everything else and Pizza Hut. (laughs) It'll change everything about them. And so getting the answer right to this question of who do you say that I am that Jesus asked is, is very, very important because there's just so much hanging on it. Who do you say I am? Jesus posed that question to his disciples in the last few months of his life. He was about 33 at the time. He'd been on the road healing people, casting out demons, teaching people for around three years by this point. And the occasion that Jesus raised this question is is just so fascinating. It's so insightful because he's just healed this blind man. And it's one of Jesus' most unusual miracles. Of the 40 or so uh, healings, uh, miracles that are recorded for us in the pages of the Bible, which are only a small proportion of the many that he did, this is the only one where Jesus only appears to half get it right. He had to heal the blind guy and the blindness in two goes. Why? Was it that Jesus mucked it up the first time? Um it could be he only gave it a half-hearted attempt, like you know, when you're not concentrating, you've got a cup of coffee and you put it on the table, but you really just put it on the edge of the table and you let go and, and whoosh, anyone done that, right? Uh, kind of thing. It, was, that, was that Jesus trying to, you know, he just kind of got his nose instead of his eyes. Um, uh, he could smell really well afterwards. You know? In fact, people said he never smelled so good. Anyway, that's, um, uh, was that what happened? But in reality, it's not like that. It it was absolutely purposeful and deliberate what Jesus did. In fact, it's an object lesson for what's going on in the Gospel of Mark. Because it's only just beginning to dawn on people just how significant Jesus is. The penny's starting to drop. But even when they can come to the right kind of answers about him, they don't see clearly still. And from here on, it's going to become abundantly clear not only who Jesus is, but what he's all about. And so the blind guy had gone home seeing in the end, and Jesus takes the disciples out of town, and as they're going, he asks them two very important questions which are going to spark a whole new phase in their lives. The first question is about people's opinions. Who do the people say I am? Yeah, what's what's the rumours going around? He's almost asking for the summary of the the Morgan Gallup poll. Yeah, it's a brainstorming exercise. I'm sure Jesus wasn't carrying around a a whiteboard with him and uh, kind of just set up. Okay, let's let's do this exercise, everyone. So that's some answers. But anyway, they all call out an answer to his question. Who do people say that I am? One yells out, "Ah, oh, they're saying you're John the Baptist." Mind you, he's just had his head knocked off. Uh, a couple of chapters back in chapter 6. But some think, well, maybe it's the same guy, come back to life, had his head reattached. That's why he's so amazing. Someone else shouts out, oh, no, 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 they're saying you're Elijah, who is 
uh, the, perhaps the greatest prophet of Israel, who was 700 years before, a man who stood for God when no one else would. He also performed many miracles in, of the kind that Jesus has been performing. Maybe he's back. Maybe he's round again. Someone else says, no, 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 they're saying you're just another one of the prophets from long ago come back. We're not sure which one, but maybe you're a new one. Maybe you're one returned. And so that's the rumours that were going around amongst the crowd, the, the whispers that the people were saying, is, that, is he John? Is he Elijah? And, and so you can tell by those answers that the crowds were impressed. The average man about town thought that Jesus was great. And not just like a pop star as if Taylor Swift was walking around signing autographs. Uh, you know, it was more impressive that they saw the miracles. There was no doubt that he was doing them. And most of them thought he had to be from God somehow. How exactly? They, they weren't sure. They didn't know. But they were impressed by him. Well, first question down, he had their interest. And so he pops the second one. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, that's much more difficult, isn't it? It's very easy to gauge popular opinion. Not so easy to expose yourself in front of the peers. Easy to say, well, my mates say that you're da-da-da-da-da, but to say what you genuinely think to your friends about who you regard Jesus as, that's confronting, isn't it? Maybe you find it that way. We can be embarrassed about knowing Jesus or, when, you know, if someone asked you if you came to church today, what are you going to say? Or what did you do on the weekend? Are you going to say, oh, church was amazing. You should come with me next weekend. In fact, you should be there every week. I'm going to pick you up. Yeah, Argentina lost, <laughs> sucked in Dave Blouse. You know, so, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we... We can be embarrassed. Sometimes we don't want our colleagues to know that we're Christians or we're investigating Christianity uh, or, or that we're even, um, even our family, it can be difficult to tell. I remember I became a Christian in 1990. I was 16 at the time. I was very young for my year. I was in year 12. Uh, and uh, it happened in April and it took me something like three months to tell my parents that I decided to become a Christian. Uh, I didn't know what they'd say. Uh, and the only reason I told them was that the minister made me do it um, because he'd signed me up for confirmation classes and then given me a permission slip that my parents had to sign because I was under 18 to get confirmed, which there you go. And I had to be baptised, so I had to ask them if I'd been Christian as a kid because I didn't remember. <laughs> and it turned out I hadn't. And so, and my, you know, so I told my mum and it was just this, Huge weight, you know. Mum, I've got to tell you something. Uh, and then I told her and she went, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, I was just fear. Uh, Jesus pressed, who do you say that I am? Perhaps there was a pause because they didn't all rush in and start yelling out answers like they did before. But Peter, who by this stage has kind of emerged as a leader amongst the group, he steps forward and he says something on behalf of the others, something which the crowds have not been saying, in fact, something that's not even crossed their minds yet. He gives an answer that means that he and the other disciples can never relate to Jesus in the same way again. Peter answered, you see it there? Jesus, you are the Christ. 
Jesus, you're the Christ. It was a dramatic conclusion to come to. For us, we might not see the significance of what he was saying. We don't feel the weight of it. Maybe we think that Christ is Jesus' surname. He's you know, Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph, a Mary Christ. You know, but that's not it. What, what did Jesus? Oh, sorry, what did Peter mean? Well, when he said Jesus was the Christ, Peter recognised what no one else did. That here in front of them in this man was the fulfilment of all of the Old Testament expectations about God's coming king. See, Christ is a title. It's, it's a Greek title. It's a Greek word. Um, it's, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. In English, if you want to translate it into English, it translates as anointed one. That is someone who's had oil tipped all over the head. So if someone... If you're in the office saying, oh, there's the Christ, you'd look around and see who's got canola running down through their ears, you know, kind of thing. That's, that's what it means. They've had oil tipped over their head. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. But in coming to that conclusion that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, it meant that Peter and I take it the other disciples, would, it was dawning on them too, believed that Jesus was the one that Israel had been waiting for over a thousand years to arrive the one God said that he would send a superhuman leader who would overthrow Israel's enemies, who, who would regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world and, and establish once and for all the perfect reign of God. So it's not a small thing for him to say, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're that one. Peter said it, but they all believed it. How does Jesus respond to that? Does he go, oh, no, you, you, you got it wrong. <laughs> Back off, Peter. <laughs> now, does he jump up and down for joy? Someone's finally worked it out. Yes. <laughs> does he set them on the war path to make that claim a rally? Okay, let's go conquer the world, boys. Does he send them out with trumpets to announce the arrival of the king? What does he do? You see it, verse 30? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, it's not that he thinks that they're wrong. He's not correcting them. He accepts what they're saying, they're right, but he wants it to be secret. Why? Well, I take it it's only because they only partially see the truth just like the man who had been healed. He could see people, but they were sort of shadowy blurs that looked a bit like trees walking around, you know, kind of half close your eyes and I might look even better. But, you know, kind of, uh, that kind of thing. They can only kind of half see the truth because Jesus is about to teach them something which they, in their wildest imaginations they had never dreamed. They would never have gone, okay, the Christ is going to do what Jesus is about to say. In fact, they just couldn't accept it when he said it because they're only just starting to see, but they haven't fully understood yet. It's, it's a blur. Yeah, they've got the right answer, but what is God's king, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, going to do? And, and it's the opposite of everything they expect. It might be the opposite of everything that we expect as well. That's in verse 30 as well. See there? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man... He's talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, 
chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's what I'm about. And it totally threw them. In fact, they were appalled. They were stunned. They were stunned into silence, all except for one. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this and Peter, I assume gulped, (laughs) took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Rebuke, I mean, he's laying in him, he's telling him off. You're an idiot, Jesus. What do you think you're talking about? Peter's first big mistake, though, it seems sensible in one way, is his sort of air of uh, protective superiority. You can imagine him putting his arms around Jesus and saying, come over here, listen to me, buddy. You're dumb. That's not what you're going to do. Let me set you straight. You've got to stop talking about all this dying nonsense. You're going to lose credibility. Kings win. They don't lose. That's not what the Christ comes to do. But Jesus lets him have it. It's almost like a punch in the face, but it's verbal. He's like, whooshka. Verse 33, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in things uh, mind the things of God, but the things of men. And those are the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke to a devoted and well-meaning friend. He's saying that's evil what you're saying. It's devil talk. It's disastrous. You're a fool, Peter. And so though Peter had the right kind of idea of who Jesus was, it was only foggy like the blind man seeing shadowy trees. It's only half the picture. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, the King, God's chosen one. But Jesus dramatically, completely and utterly blows out of the water their whole understanding, their entire expectations, their, their whole worldview. He just, he just sent it spinning. I am the king who has come here to be killed. The world king who has to be murdered. I have to do this. It has to be the case. It must happen. Though I am the one from God who will rule everything entirely, properly, righteously, but what have I got to do right now? I've got to be rejected, suffer, die. It's not what anyone expects. It may not be what we expect, certainly not what the disciples expected, but that's what Jesus is setting out to do. Resolutely, he sets out to achieve those things. And from here, it's just one-way trip to Jerusalem. With determination, he's going there and those things will become a reality. And they will try and stop him several times. They will beg him not to go and say, this, this is wrong. This is not what the Christ does. The Christ is the winner. And he was going to do it. Why? Was it fatalism? Now, everyone dies, got to die somewhere. It may as well be in Jerusalem. At least it's pretty there. You get some good views from the hill. <laughs> uh, was it some kind of weird martyr complex? You know, I want to die for a cause. Was it paranoia? Ah, oh, they're going to get me. I just got to give in. Was it depression? Is it suicide, he's thinking? No, it's, it's, it's much more profound than any of those things. It's because of something that no one understood, something formed in the mind of God which, which defies human logic. And that is to help people, to, to truly save people, to actually restore people to their relationship with God and, and create this kingdom where Jesus reigns, he would have to go through this, be rejected, suffer and die. 
You know, our brains say that a king should come with power and pomp and position, and Jesus denies that. Our brains say that if we were going to run the world, we'd start, what would we do? What would be your first act as king of the world or queen of the world? You know, give me stuff, lord it over everyone, try and make our fantasies become reality. Jesus denies that. And it gets clearer and clearer why Jesus says it's got to be why the king has to suffer and die if he's to ever save. And because as, we, as we've seen over the last uh, few weeks especially, Jesus keeps putting his finger on the spiritual pulse of every one of us. And he says that in, in each of us, by nature, there is a heart that is dark towards God. That by nature, we push the maker and ruler of this universe to one side. We, whether we do it deliberately or inadvertently, whether we do it as angry atheists shaking our fists and defying his existence, or we just do it as kind of average Australians who just couldn't care less. And he says what we need, what we desperately need, is someone who can deal with our hearts, someone who can deal with our sin, someone who can sort things out between us and God, deal with the punishment of sin, deal with the consequences of sin, and deal with the root of sin. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, when it comes to sin, somebody has to pay. That has to be paid for. And when it comes to paying for sin, it's either going to be you and me and the cost will be our lives or it's going to be Jesus. And the way that Jesus is going to do that is on the cross. In the greatest act of substitution, he took all that was due for sin upon himself. On August the 16th, 1987... Northwest Airlines Flight 255 took off from Detroit and crashed a couple of minutes afterwards, killed 156 people on board. There was one survivor, a four-year-old girl from uh, Tempe, Arizona. Her name was Cecilia. Uh, you can watch her being interviewed uh, on, on YouTube if you want to see his Cecilia's story, recollections from 30 years ago. News accounts say that when the rescuers found Cecilia, they couldn't believe that she'd been on the plane. Uh, they assumed she must have gotten out of the car, one of the cars and got lost. So all the, the cars on the road stopped because they'd just seen this plane go down and someone's child would wander off. And she said, I was on the plane. And when they checked the passenger register, the, uh, there was Cecilia's name with her mum. Uh, and Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, her mum unbuckled her seat, came and knelt down in front of her and wrapped, wrapped her in her own arms and body and wouldn't let her go. No, nothing could separate that child from her mother's love, neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, neither life nor death. And like that child caught in the middle of the disaster, We've become trapped by our own sin and we're spiralling down towards inevitable doom. But our God loved us so much that he left heaven, he came down to our level and covered us with the sacrifice of his own body so that we might be saved from the fall. It's not how we would do it if we were God. 
But it's the only way that God can do it. So as to be completely loving and merciful, but also still be just and deal rightly with sin and its consequences because someone has to pay and he decided it was going to be him. He took it all upon himself. But that leaves us with a choice. A choice of whether we're going to accept that or reject it. <laughs> yeah, there's only the world to gain if we accept it. There's, there's life and forgiveness. And I mean, many of you know how wonderful it is to know God as your loving Heavenly Father who's given everything for you. There is nothing better. But there is a cost, that there are consequences. And it would be remiss of me to sell you a product without telling you what the cost is because Jesus never did it and I'm not going to either. And that's where Peter's second big mistake was because if Jesus is the king, then he has to rule and not me. There's forgiveness and love like you could never imagine and it's a gift, it's a free gift. But there's something that you've got to know. So here, 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we're going to travel with Jesus through life, it's not like getting together with your mates and sightseeing around Europe, you know, getting drunk or you know, having a blast or seeing museums if you're into that. <laughs> if... if if we're going to travel with the king, then we've got to realise that the king's indeed this, this king of kings and lord of lords. He, he's the one that calls the shots. We're on his travel itinerary. He, he sets the path and we walk it. He, he leads, we follow. And, and it's not all going to be a barrel of laughs, the sort of stupid hedonism the world is so enamoured with. There is joy there's great joy. In fact, it's the most joyous thing in the world to be his, but there's also sacrifice. As he says, denying self. That's not just about saying no to chocolate, but, it, but it's saying no to living for me and, and yes to living for God. Taking up your cross, he's not simply talking about trials and hardships which everyone goes through like a, like a difficult boss or an unsatisfying relationship or a bossy mother-in-law, I'm not admitting anything. Uh, <laughs> nor is he talking about you know, illness or handicap or mental problems. They're the ways that people talk about, you know, I'm bearing my cross, this is my cross to bear. But that's, that's not what he's talking about. Nor is he talking about wearing Christian jewellery. You know, we all have to go out and get the biggest, heaviest wooden cross you know, like, you know, to look pretty. You gotta realize, a cross is a symbol of death. Taking up your cross is saying, I'm going to follow Jesus even to death. I'm going to put up with disdain, with anything that people will throw at me, with whatever for him, because he gave up everything for me. It's saying, my life is forfeit. I am his. And, and you can see that's the case in what follows in verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? 
Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's no good having everything, everything, only to lose it all in the very end. I mean, imagine. Imagine having having the world, having everything you ever wanted, having you know what I've got already, good looks and, and money and you know, a great job and popularity and a loving wife and you know, a great apartment. No, I haven't got that. You know, so, uh, you know, maybe a home on the North Shore or you know, the North Shore of Ingleburn, Denham Court. You know, so, uh, imagine having it all and then coming to face-to-face with Jesus in all his glory and discovering you had it all in vain, that it was just nothing. Can you imagine standing there and seeing his hands and his feet which had bled for you though you'd never accepted it? Can you imagine what that would be like? What what is he going to say to those who have ignored him? Who, who, who just couldn't be bothered. To those who turned away, they, they walked away from him, though they knew who he was, um, because they were chasing some temporary fantasy which could never last. It, it, none of it will ever last. What is he going to say to that person? Get nicked. Away from me. I, I never knew you. What would it profit you to have it all and yet fail to know the one who really does own it all? But then there's the flip side. Knowing Jesus, not just knowing who he is, but seeing clearly and and knowing him as friend, as Lord, as Saviour. It'll mean life. It'll mean eternal life. It'll mean life to the full. It'll mean life everlasting with him because whoever loses his life for me will save it, he says. I mean, imagine again standing before Jesus in in all of his glory, but this time as someone who who he was friends with, someone who knew him, as someone who'd become one of his followers, someone who'd been forgiven of everything, the the slate had been wiped clean, and because they trusted that he he died for them and paid. You, You imagine standing there as one of his people, someone who belonged to him, and someone who'd given up serving themselves in order to please their king. I mean, just, just think about the look on his face, the, the, the smile. And, and hear his words. Welcome home. Welcome home. This is your home. My home's your home. You who trusted me. You who followed me to the very end. Welcome home, my friend. Welcome home, my son. Welcome home, my daughter. Welcome home. My friends, welcome home, my family. What's mine is now yours. Come into my kingdom. Come and enjoy everything that I own. Because that's ultimately what knowing who Jesus is and committing yourself to him will mean. Life, forgiveness, salvation, it may be costly in the meantime. It may be embarrassing. It may cause family issues. That shouldn't surprise you. Jesus taught those things would happen. But none of them is worth exchanging for the glory that is to come for those who are Jesus' followers. Who do you say 
Jesus is? Have you really thought about it? Who, who is he really? If you know who he is, but you've been holding back for some foolish reason, um, if you know he's the Christ, stop fighting him. Give up now. You cannot win when you fight the King of Kings. Give up now. Give in to his love. Incredible love. Give in to his lordship. Give yourself to him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. I mean, what, what, what would hold you back? Is it you really can't see clearly yet? You, you, you just, is he really that good? You, do, you don't try to figure it out. Or is it just the embarrassment or you really want that, the world without him? It's a stupid fantasy. It's all going to vanish. Give up on it. Come to the one who can give you everything. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Now, we don't normally do this, but um, a, we're going to put up a prayer on the overhead here. Uh, Andrew, help you there. And uh, I thought it would be a good thing to do, whether you have given yourself to him or not yet. I mean, it's great to, to say the same things to God. Or whether you think, you know what, I've got, just got to give in. This is the day. Um, we're going to pray this prayer out loud together. Um, and I'd love you, if, if this is your prayer, and, and you've really given in today to Jesus. Just come talk to me about it afterwards. It's really acknowledging that I haven't been living for Jesus, that I need a fresh start, that Jesus has paid, and thanking him for that, and then saying, have me back, help me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow. Let's pray. Almighty and loving God, I know that I haven't been living for you. I'm sorry I have ignored you and live without you in charge. I want a fresh start. Thanks that Jesus died for my sins so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that you are offering life and joy beyond anything I have ever imagined. Please forgive me and change me. Help me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. Amen.